This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. All right, come with me please this morning again to Ephesians uh, chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. I think this is maybe part 10 of this particular uh, little series. We've had some breaks between it for Easter and visiting speakers, but uh, we're, we're seeing the end in sight. It's coming. Trust me. And uh, we did not intend to go through this as, as, as much as we have done this time, but what do you leave out? It's all good. Uh, uh, should I say tonight as well, uh, we'll take a little break from this, come back to it next week, but tonight, last Sunday night, we talked about Russia in the light of the last days, particularly involved in the Battle of Armageddon. Tonight, I want to look at Israel in the world spotlight. Israel in the world spotlight. We'll look at that tonight, and uh, you can see how that leads into what we talked about last week as well. So Ephesians chapter 5, reading from verse 21, excuse me. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his wife loves himself. For no, one yet, for no one ever hated it in his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. In living out our Christian lives, and this is part four of that within the larger series, we now turn our attention to the relationships between husband and wife, between parents and children, and between slaves and masters, or you can change that to in employees and employers. We're not going to really get further this morning than husbands and wives. That will be our our focus uh, this morning. And so these are the three areas in which all of us as believers will have ample opportunity to live out our Christian lives. This is where the rubber hits the road, so to speak. If you're going to be tested in your Christianity, no doubt it will be within your family, with, among your children, and in the workplace. Those are the areas, the arenas, where we've got to live out this life. And so he begins with marriage, the relationship between a husband 
and a wife. This is, in God's estimation, the strongest relationship on earth, even surpassing the relationship between the parent and the child. And we know that the bond very often between a parent and a child is extremely strong, but God expects the bond between a husband and wife to far superior, far surpassing all of that and superior to that. Now, before we get into this, let me say that after 2,000 years, in the Western world particularly, after 2,000 years of knowing the model of Christian marriage, and most people in the Western world at least uh, are familiar with the tenets of Christian marriage and, and should know how it looks and how it ought to work and how it is in practice. Uh, and so they have a reasonable idea about these things. But understand that when Paul was writing to the Ephesian believers, that the church was very, very young. Christianity was very, very young. It was just beginning, as it were. And so the three great cultures that he speaks into is the Hebrew culture, the Greek culture, and the Roman culture. And those are the three cultures that the backdrop that he's writing to these believers is. And so we need to understand where he's writing from. This is the context that he's writing this to these Ephesian believers. And so marriage for the Christian in those days, particularly because it was just starting out, it was very, very different than anything they were seeing around them. Obviously, it was based on the Old Testament tenets of Judaism, but what they could see around them bared no resemblance to marriage as Paul was saying that Christians ought to be living and ought to be experiencing. And so Christian marriage was miles way better than anything that was in those other cultures. Now, William Barclay gives us an insight into, uh, into the Hebrew culture, uh, which should have been the model particularly and should have been the leader in all of this. And so Judaism, the religion of the Jews, is one that should, be in, should have been the, the role model for the rest of society. Uh, but sadly, uh, Judaism by this time had allowed marriage to be something that was very careless and weakened. And instead of following uh, the, the laws of marriage that's within the Torah, uh, they had reduced it uh, to writing out a bill of divorcement uh, for almost any infringement that a man or a, a woman could have against one another to get out of the marriage. They just write out a bill of divorcement. There you are, I'm divorced. And so that's what it had been reduced to, which shouldn't have been. Now, God allowed that. Jesus says God allowed that because of the hardness of their hearts. He allowed that. And so William Barclay then gives us these illustrations. The Greeks and the Romans were much worse than that. Uh, Barclay says, for instance, in Greece, a married woman had no part in a man's life. She was not even a true companion to her husband. She was simply there to run his home and care for his children. A Greek husband was expected to find companionship, and you can read into that whatever you like, companionship uh, elsewhere. Roman culture, as we have seen through this study, was highly promiscuous highly sexualized culture. And divorce and remarriage by this time in the Roman Empire was commonplace. And they would get divorced and remarried again and again and again and again. It had been that bad. That's what it was like. 
And a Roman man had a wife for no other reason than to bear his children and to legitimize his children. But he sought his pleasures elsewhere, whether with concubines or mistresses or prostitutes or wherever, but certainly not with his wife. And so it's no exaggeration to say then that Christianity has been the most liberating, the most safeguarding, the most freedom-giving thing that has ever happened to woman. And I didn't hear one amen. <laughs> and you ladies should have said, amen, pastor. But you missed your opportunity. And so in spite of what strident feminists say, no other religion in the world has so uplifted and extolled womankind and children than Christianity. Tell me one other religion that has done as much for women and children as Christianity. None. And so, marriage is God's idea. Marriage is God's ideal. The very first institution that God ever gave to human beings was marriage. In the creation story, everything he made, he said, and it was good. But then when he made man, and before he made woman, he said something was not good. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a help meet for him. I will make someone who will be comparable and a true companion fit it perfectly for him. And so the first marriage that God inaugurated, of course, was Adam and Eve. And in Matthew 19, Jesus referring to this when he was asked questions about marriage and divorce, and he answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Now, let me just say this as an aside. It's not a subject. <laughs> There's a lot of people today, unfortunately, some so-called Christians who think that Adam and Eve was just a metaphor. It's just metaphorical. It wasn't real. It was just God's way of trying to teach us something. Obviously, Jesus didn't think that. Jesus believed, and Paul believed, and the disciples believed that Adam and Eve was real, that they were true human beings, and they were created at the beginning, not after the earth had been a million years, and then he created them. At the beginning. At the beginning of what? At the beginning of creation. And he made them male and female. So there's no ambiguity here. There's no vagueness about that. He made them male and female. There's a lot of ambiguity about gender today. We'll talk about that in a moment or two. But Jesus didn't see any at all. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And so Jesus had a very high estimation of the marital bond. God made it so at the beginning of creation that a man and a woman should be in a marital relationship and it ought to be the highest relationship on the face of the earth. Sadly, that's not always the case today. 
Another writer, James Montgomery Boyce, he makes a comment that I've never heard before. He says that marriage is the institution which all other institutions come from. Then he explains it this way. The earliest education was done in the home as mothers and fathers taught their children how to walk, how to talk, how to eat, how to work, how to play, all the rest of it. And from this basic and natural responsibility have come all other formal centers of learning, like schools and colleges and academies and universities. He said the earliest health care was, was developed in the home, from which came hospitals and clinics and hospices and the like. And the home was the earliest center for human government. And from that developed patriarchal and monarchal and democratic forms of government. So right at the very beginning of man's life on earth, God, through marriage, sowed the seeds of the governance of all human society for the whole human race. That's how big it is in God's estimation. No wonder Satan sought to destroy the very bedrock of all society, and he began right in the very Garden of Eden when he put that wedge between a man and his wife. And damage ensued to the point where it wasn't very long until the first murder was committed within the first family that God created. And so Satan knows the power of the family unit. He knows it is the foundation of every society. So therefore he will do everything in his power to dismantle it. And we see it trying to be dismantled before our very eyes today, as it always has been, one way or the other. And so today we see the rise of the LGBT movement. We see the rise of the same-sex marriage movement. We see the rise of homosexual organizations, all vying for the right to live contrary to how God, who instituted marriage in the first place, meant it to be. And the saddest thing of all is that certain churches and some denominations have bought into this lie and are actually extolling the virtues so-called of it. <coughs> of course, the mantra is, well, as long as you love somebody. That's the mantra. If two people of the same sex, as long as they love each other, what's the harm? That's the mantra. Why not? Why not have marriage if that's the case? Well, let me put this to you. If love is the criteria alone, if that's it, why not three people get married to each other? After all, they love each other. Why not siblings, brothers and sisters? Why, why not if they love each other? I mean, what could possibly be wrong with that arrangement if love is the criteria? Now, unless you think that I'm going too far, then you're behind the times, I'm afraid, because there are those in society who are pushing for that very thing right today. And who's to say they won't get it? Who's to say that that won't happen? I'm old enough to live. I'm old enough living now to be able to say, I never thought I would see the day when the laws that are being passed are being passed today. And so if that's the mantra, then anything goes. If love is the foundation for everything, then anything and everything goes. 
And who's going to argue against that? If you love each other, that's the argument. But of course we know that that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not how God sees it. Did you ever think you would see the day when genders would be erased? Did you ever think you'd live in a generation where that would happen? That somehow there's something wrong by calling each other male and female, or mister, or miss, or missus? That somebody might have been offended by that, and some perceived slight might have happened if you call somebody Miss, Miss, or Mrs., or even Ms., and that Z and Zai and Zo and all kinds of crazy nonsense. But that's what we're coming to. And so, did you ever think to see the day that you'd have genderless toilets? Yeah, did you ever think you'd live to see that? Or gender fluidity? Fluidity? Where, where if a man wakes up in the morning and he decides, well, today I, I think I'll just feel like being a woman today. I'll just identify as a woman today. Or a woman wakes up and says, I'll just identify as a man today. And there are people in government who actually want to bring in laws to make that lawful. And if you disagree with it, or you voice an opinion against it, the chances are you'll be prosecuted under a hate crime offense. And so we're seeing the dismantling of thousands and thousands of years of traditional marriage and gender designations to appease those who have no regard for God or his word. And the vast majority of people who don't even believe in God's word or believe in God, who still doesn't accept this, too bad, you'll have to accept it. Too bad. As one writer says, now we're the ones that they want to put into the closet. They're out of the closet, they want to put us into the closet. If you have an opinion against that lifestyle, I'm afraid it could be a hate crime. And so these laws are being implemented even this today. Paul well understood when writing to these Ephesian believers that there were major issues within marriage and the society in which they lived. That's why he's writing this. And so even the Jews who were the keepers of God's word, even they had begun to flagrantly compromise the word of God to satisfy their own selfish desires. And so with that brief introduction, let's begin to see what Paul says about marriage and what he expects from us as Christian believers how to live this out. And you will notice very quickly that the template that, God, that Paul uses for marriage is the relationship between Christ and his church. So it's a spiritual template. So this is very, very high up in Paul's estimation and in God's estimation. And he likens it onto the relationship between Christ and his church. And you couldn't get any higher than that. Sure you couldn't. So this is not a small thing we're dealing with. And it's not a small thing in society that we're dealing with either. So that's why God hates anything that destroys 
marriage because that's the very thing that's supposed to typify the relationship between Christ and his church. And so in these verses, Paul brings up the thorny, thorny subject of submission. And as soon as you say, wives, submit to your husband, that's fighting talk. Haggles rise on necks. And I'm not sure that Paul ever wrote anything that has generated so much heat with so little light in this business of submission. But it's here and we've got to look at it. We've got to deal with it. Verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. Verse 24, therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, countless men have abused this and countless women have refused this. And so it's something we need to deal with and look into. It's okay, Liz, you can put your phone off. Who says it? It's in somebody's bag. Is it Fania's bag? Turn that phone off, Ken. <laughs> I, I know that's her birthday today, but <laughs> tell whoever rang her to go away. <laughs> It's not her phone, is it? <laughs> All right, good. Right, you can cut that out, Gary. You can uh, delete that bit. You can edit that bit out. I know you're good at those things. <laughs> and so whenever it comes to this whole thing about submission, there's two kinds of submission that are mentioned here. Uh, one is mutual submission, verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. The other is a particular submission, verse 22 and 24. Uh, and, and this is where wives are submitting to their husband, which is a very particular kind of submission. But in saying that, then we need to refer to another scripture that Paul wrote in Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, you don't need to turn to this, I'll just read it. Galatians 3, 27 and 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ. So, in spiritual terms, Christian wife, you have got exactly the same God as your father, exactly the same Christ as your savior, exactly the same Holy Spirit in you that's in him, in your husband if he's a believer. And so, as a Christian wife, there is absolutely no difference whatsoever in your standing before God and your salvation as your Christian husband. You are not a lesser or lower or second-tier believer in Christ. We are all one in Christ, Paul said to the Galatian church. So Paul is not talking here about your righteousness in Christ, he's talking about your role in Christ as a Christian wife. And that's very different because we have different roles. Even the family of the Godhead, even though they're one, but they have different roles, as it were. And you notice that Jesus always submitted himself to the Father, always, at all times. And so... 
you have a mutual standing before God, but a particular role before God in marriage is, and a role is different. Unfortunately, that some men, some Christian men, have used these terms submission and subjection as a blunt instrument to batter their wives into submission into the corner. And that is not a million, that is a million miles from what Paul was even thinking about. Because that's what the other cultures were doing, the Roman, the Greco-Roman cultures. That's what they were doing. And do you think Paul was advising Christian men to do that? I don't think so. In fact, he wanted them to do the opposite. He wanted them to be the role models within their society. And so when Paul speaks of submissions, objection, he's hardly telling Christians to act like the world, is he? I don't think so. There's a different set of rules for us in Christian marriage. Now, there is a difference between submission and obedience. Submission has more to do with the attitude of the heart. Obedience has more to do with their actions. I'll say that again. Submission has more to do with the attitude of her heart and obedience more to do with her actions. Obviously, no woman, no Christian woman particularly, should ever obey a husband who wants to violate her conscience and her morality. This business, obey your husbands in everything. There's a limit to that. If it's going to impact your morality or your very conscience, then you're not, ob, no, under no obligation to do that. If it's going to detract from your wife's purity or ethics or conscience or spirituality, then, then you ought not to do that. What, for instance, let me give you an example. What if a man, what if a, an unbelieving man says to his believing wife, I forbid you to go to church. Should she obey? No, of course not. No more than if the government says, we forbid you to preach the gospel and to mention the name of Jesus. Because that's what the governments did to the disciples at the beginning, didn't they? And they says, no, we would rather obey God than man. And so there comes a point, and Paul was very submissive to governments, and he taught to be submissive to governments. He says they're God-ordained. But that only goes so far until they come and try to get us to go again our conscience with God, our impact on morality as a believer, then we say no. We obey God rather than man. So in other words, a husband and a Christian husband cannot just demand that his wife just bow to him, particularly and especially if it's something that's affecting our conscience and our morality, our purity, our spirituality. Then... There's a line that has been crossed. <coughs> if you are submissive, your heart will be willing and you will want to please your husband. He, in turn, will want to be an example to you of Christ's love for his church. In other words, he will not be an overbearing brute at home and an archangel in church. Because there's some men who are like that. There's been some preachers who's been like that. 
if you want to know about your preacher, he's not going to be perfect. He's going to make his mistakes. He's human. He's going to get things wrong. But if you want to know, is he godly, then ask his wife. Because she's got to live with him. And she'll tell you, well, he's not perfect. But yes, he is godly. And that's the way it should be if you stand behind a pulpit. But it's not always the case, sad to say. And so a husband has got to be an example to his wife the way that Christ was an example to his church. By the way, wives, Christian wives, if you think that Paul is overloading you in this, trust me, he isn't. In fact, he has twice as much to say to the husband as he has to the wife. Actually, truly, yes. 115 words he says to the husband and 40 words he says to the wife. So he has more to say to him than to her, actually. And if you think it's a high standard for you to submit, then think of your husband who has to love you as Christ loved his church. And that's a high standard, isn't it? Have we got to that stage yet? I'm not sure that we have. <laughs> Who says yes? <laughs> There's one everywhere, isn't there? There's always one, isn't there? <laughs> I don't see Jennifer sitting beside you when you said that. Is she? I, I, she's in the crash, right? Uh, see how brave he is when his wife's not in the room, eh? <laughs> You see, I'm not making light of this, but to show you the balance in this, all you have to do as a Christian wife is be submissive and respectful to your husband, but he has to be willing to lay down his very life for you. He literally has to be willing to die for you because Christ died literally for his church. So that's a higher standard, isn't it? I'm not too sure that you think that. But you see, all this proves is the generation that we live in of what we have been fed. Rather than being fed God's word, we're fed. We take our chief from the world around us rather than from God's word. And when the hackle dries in the back of your neck, it's a good sign that you've been listening to the world around you rather than to listen to God's word. And so... Your husband has to love you with the same agape love that Christ loved his church. The same unconditional, unrelenting, never say die love. And that's an incredibly high standard indeed. And so Paul here is at great pains to show them that a godly marriage is a wife and a husband first. First, both of them submitting themselves to Christ as the head of the church. And then the wife submitting herself to the husband as unto the Lord. And then the husband loves her as much as Christ loves his church. Can somebody say amen? amen. And I hope that was both man and woman, not amen. Now in the first verse we read, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So here's the big question. 
We've talked about a wife submitting to her husband. How does a husband submit to his wife? Because we're to submit one to another in the fear of God. What kind of submissive, willing, wanting to please his wife attitude is he going to have to have? Well, let me give you four or five things to think about. First of all, love your wife as Christ loves the church. That's the first obvious one, isn't it? This love, agape love, or agape love, however you want to pronounce it, this love is more than fuzzy feelings. Fuzzy feelings wear off. Hmm? Am I talking to a blank wall today? Fuzzy feelings, common fuzzy feelings, go. You can't 24-7, 365 days a year, live on fuzzy feelings. They just won't be there. When you get up in the morning, you don't have many fuzzy feelings about anything. <laughs> so your relationship needs to be built more than just pure emotional feelings. Because when those feelings go, if that's what you built everything on, when they go, you go. Or you're looking to move on to another fuzzy feeling experience with somebody else. So it's got to be more than that. It's got to be as Christ loved his church. And Christ is committed to his church 100%. Your love will need to be built on the solid rock, not in shifting sands. Now, love your wife as Christ loves his church. Love your wife as you love yourself. That's what Paul says. Just as we care for ourselves and we tend to ourselves and make sure our own needs and desires are met, so we should likewise do for our wives. So our submission is doing everything we can to love our wives and to make them feel fulfilled and happy in their marriage. Seeing them well, seeing them cared for, appreciated, seeing their desires, hopes fulfilled, not only will it bless them, but it will bless us in return. Because we love ourselves. That's a given, isn't it? We love ourselves. And so we should love our wives as ourselves. As much as we want to look after ourselves and protect ourselves and care for ourselves and tend to the needs of ourselves to that degree and more, we should love our wives. Love your wife more than you love your mother or your father. Did you notice that it was the man who was supposed to cut the apron strings? For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. And sadly, sometimes men do not do that. God help the wife who has to compete for her husband's mother. That ought not ever to be the case. When you take a wife or a husband, picturing the man, when you take a wife, she, from that point on, is the main thing in your life. Not your mother, not your father. 
as much as you love them, but you ought to love your wife more. She is priority number one. And they should not come between you and her. Now, we know sometimes marriages fail. We know sometimes things happen. We know sometimes there's disasters. And parents should give all the support they can in that case. So I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about generally sticking her noses in where it's not wanted, putting her oar in where it's not needed. And sometimes mothers has a hard job letting go and wants to hold on and sometimes live to resent. Ought not to be. We ought to be able to let go. And husbands especially ought to be able to let go as well. So no wonder marriages don't survive or become hell for long-suffering wives if the main competition is his mother. Somebody says that Adam and Eve had the perfect marriage. <laughs> they had no mother-in-laws, no father-in-laws, no in-laws. Now, I'm personally thankful that I never once ever in 50 years ever had a row or ill words with either of my in-laws. Both of them are gone today, but we never had that. And my wife never had any rows or bad words with her in-laws. Thankfully, but I know that's not always the case. I know there's lots of jokes about it, but that's not always the case. Somebody said Adam didn't have to hear about all the men she could have married. <laughs> and his wife didn't, she didn't have to hear about all the ways his mother used to beg it. <laughs> and then, fourthly, love your wife as you love no other person on earth. Be a one-woman man. Do not let any other female come between you and your wife. Because that's what Satan wants to do to destroy marriages. Be a one-woman man. Make your vows stick. Love unconditionally. Have eyes for no other woman. Doesn't mean that you don't talk to other women. It doesn't even mean that you can't say another woman is attractive because they are. It doesn't mean a wife can't say other men are attractive because they are. But in the sense that you don't flirt or have any dalliance or be caught in any compromising positions or say anything inappropriate, do not go down that road because if you do, it'll destroy your whole marriage. Now we're about to finish. Although it's not my subject this morning, but I'm aware, for example, that there are, there are those, for instance, who, uh, particularly wives, and you're a believer, but you're married to an unbelieving husband. Uh, and that's the way things are. That's, that's, at this moment, that's where it is. And you're praying for him and you're trusting and believing that someday he will come to Christ as you came to Christ and, and you'll be one together in Christ spiritually. But right now, that's not the case. So what do you do? Where does that leave you in your situation? Well, by the way, 1 Corinthians 7 has a lot to say about those things and we're not going to get into that today because it's a big, big subject on its own. But in 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, Peter here is saying, 
And this is particularly for a believing wife with an unbelieving husband. Wives, verse 1, 1 Peter 3. Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, so they're unbelievers, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. So in other words, you don't have to always be preaching at them, but live your Christian life before them, that they will see a difference in you. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on a fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror." Likewise, husbands dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. Uh, weaker doesn't mean mentally weaker. It just means more tender. You know, mom was made from the dust of the ground, but a woman came from Adam's flesh, one step removed from the earth. So a bit more tender and sensitive. That's what's talking about as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers, men, be not hindered. Now, I explained a few weeks ago in another context, this business didn't let your adornment be merely outward, ranging a hair, wearing gold, putting on fine apparel. That's what the Greco-Roman world woman did to try to get the attention of her husband continually because there was great competition because they had concubines and misters and all the rest of it. So they went to great elaborate lengths to try to be attractive to their husbands. And Peter's saying, you get an unsaved husband, the best way to be attractive to him is to have a gentle and mild and beautiful spirit. That'll speak volumes. Yes, it doesn't mean you get up in the morning and you don't comb your hair or brush your teeth <laughs> or look like something that was dragged through a hedge backwards. <laughs> I mean, no husband in the world wants that. We're only human after all, aren't we? You know, have yourself lovely in appearance and smell good and look good and dress good. <laughs> I'm going to be in trouble today. Oh, good job my wife knows I really do love her. <laughs> right, let me just finish in closing. Just read you a couple of things, that quotations that I just read. Here's one called The Golden Secret. <coughs> this is somebody wrote this. On her golden wedding anniversary, my grandmother re revealed the secret of her long and happy marriage. On my wedding day, I decided to choose 10 of my husband's faults, which for the sake of her marriage, I would overlook, she explained. I guess I asked her to name some of the faults. To tell the truth, she replied, I never did get around to listing them. But whenever my husband did something that made me hopping mad, I would say to myself, lucky for him, that's one of the 10. <laughs> <clears throat> A new widow was agonizing about what to put on her husband's gravestone. Should it say this? Should it say that? 
Finally, she decided on these two. Rest in peace until we meet again. <laughs> Marriage is an institution that turns a night owl into a homing pigeon. And of course, uh, old Matthew Henry, the great old Bible scholar, said, a woman was not made out of his head to be lorded over by him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal to him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be loved by him. Charlie Shedd said, marriage is not so much finding the right person, but being the right person. And Oscar Hammerstein said these lovely words, and you'll remember these. A bell is not a bell until you ring it. A song is not a song until you sing it. Love in your heart is not put there to stay. Love is not love until you give it away. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.